What is Gnosticism? How did it threaten the early church? And what is its connections with the non-canonical gospels such as the Gospel of Thomas? Find out this and much more as we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Leo Purser, on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host, Brian Chilton. We want to remind you that the Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of BellatorChristie.com. Be sure to go and visit the site, and while you're there, be sure to subscribe. By doing so, you'll receive all of the articles and links to this very podcast as soon as they're published in your inbox. And the best part of it is, it's absolutely free. So you can also take the podcast with you on the go by catching up, uh, on, catching us on one of the following apps. Uh, we are available on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, we have a great honor and privilege uh, to be joined by who I call the man. Uh, this is Dr. Leo Purser. Uh, he is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies and the Ph.D. Program Director at Liberty University. Uh, Dr. Purser is no stranger to our podcast. Uh, he earned a, a Ph.D. Uh, at Baylor University in Religion and Philosophy, uh, an M.A. at Western Kentucky University. Uh, he received his Master of Divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his B.A. at Union University. He also is an article of many works including an article on Gnosticism in the Popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics, edited by Ed Heinsen and Ergen Kader. And he also blogs at beyondthewardrobe.blogspot.com. And I do encourage you to go to his uh, blog. He has a lot of wonderful po- uh, blogs, uh, posts, that he posts there at that uh, website. So we do encourage you to go and uh, check that out. So Dr. Purser, we want to welcome you back with us on the Bellator Christie Podcast. <laughs> well, in my opinion, you deserve every bit of it. You've been a blessing to me, and, and I know several others can say the same. Uh, today, we want to talk about Gnosticism, but before we jump into this, uh, we want to uh, start off our conversation uh, with 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 a bit of a uh, with a topic, and 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 we're, we're giving we want to be uh, forthright and say. Uh, uh, in full discretion, we're giving speculation in what we're getting ready to talk about at the outset, not the Gnosticism part, but this one conversation. And it's talking about a fragment of the Gospel of Mark uh, that has uh, supposedly, maybe, and this is obviously, we want to say may, uh, be one of the earliest uh, fragments of the Gospels that have been found. Uh, what's, what's your early speculation uh, about this fragment? Well, I, I, I have not seen the fragment, so um, anything I say can simply be, like you said, speculation based on what I've read. If it holds true that this, this uh, fragment, and uh, I think Dr. Habermas announced that it could be dated as early as 80, uh, 80 to 110, if, if this is true, then this certainly um, has impact on dating the Gospels. And that's, I think, the big, most significant part of it. If, if this document contains Mark, and again, I haven't seen it, and if it is datable uh, accurately to 80, then that's going to tell me that depending on the family of this text, we could date Mark as early as, as 60 to 50, 50 to 60 
AD without too much difficulty. Again, if the dating is valid, not having seen the Mark Fragment and not knowing anything about the, the, the history of it at this point, all I'm going on is what uh, Dr. Habermas announced and what I've seen in articles online. But it could be very significant with regards to gospel studies. If um, we have a, a document for John's gospel, for example, the John Ryland's papyrus, that dates to roughly the second century, early second century, we're looking probably about 120, some dated even to 130. Um, if that, uh, if that, that fragment has led to uh, arguments about John being written in the late first century, which is a typical uh, conservative evangelical date for that book, uh, 80 to 90. Um, so 30 years of time passes for uh, a, a manuscript to be copied and travel to Alexandria, in the case of the John Rylands papyrus, then depending on this family of manuscripts where this, this document comes from and where we found it, if, if we're talking 30 years transmission history, then that pushes the date of Mark back to AD 50, perhaps, which would be very significant in synoptic studies. I think, uh, I mean, if, if we look at Jesus' life and times as being uh, up to about 33, 35, again, depending on who you read, then if we're talking about a, a gospel written roughly 10 to 15 years after Jesus' burial and resurrection, that's pretty significant. And we were talking before the podcast that if you hold to Matthean priority, that would even give make an argument for Matthew being dated even earlier. Oh, exactly. If, if uh, it, it, and some of us do, there are still uh, some of us old war horses in the scholarship that see Matthew as, as the first gospel. If Mark can be dated to 50, then if Matthew is indeed the first gospel, as church history unanimously tells us, then we have to date Matthew earlier than Mark, which would put it pre-50, you know, maybe even the 40s. Now, again, if, uh, if, if we date Jesus' life to, to uh, his, his death and resurrection to around A.D. Uh, 33 to 35, most people put it around 33, when you're talking, if, if Matthew's writing in the early 40s, barely a decade after Jesus' resurrection, we have a gospel being written, that's pretty significant. That would even predate some of Paul's materials, maybe even the letter of James that we have, that's the, at least in my opinion, the earliest book in the Greek New Testament would be James's letter. Um, this could date the Gospels back to almost the time when James is writing, certainly wow. in some cases pre-Paul. That is incredible. <laughs> and that would be amazing. I mean, apologetically, it'd be very significant, but as far as synoptic studies and New Testament studies, if this date holds, even the 110 date is significant. If it's, if it's dated, if, the, if the, 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 the latest possible date is AD 110, you're still looking at the copy that this was made from having been written in the you know, late first century. That's still fairly significant when you think about it. Um, I don't know what the, I'd have to look it up because I haven't done any research on this. We just brought it up before we started the podcast. Um, I don't know the oldest um, Mark manuscript is that we have. I'm thinking second century. But my point is, this would obviously predate any of that, which does give us, a, you know, again, the 80 AD date would be an amazing thing if it holds true because it would give us a date uh, in the, you know, late to, well, mid-first century as a possible date of the original document, which that would be astounding, quite mm. frankly. I don't know how to put it. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Well, I mean, you're talking now not just eyewitness documents based on reading the text and coming to those conclusions, but an eyewitness document based on a date that puts it close enough to make it literally a document from an eyewitness. And you know it's amazing that they that they stumbled across this this fragment, and it just makes me wonder if there aren't many more fragments to be found, uh, maybe even earlier. You know, who knows? We may even find some earlier fragments that. In the, well, we never know, right? Just absolutely right. amazing stuff. Well, the truth is, you know, is, is, uh, as several authors have argued in the past, early manuscript evidence gives credibility. To, uh, to the idea that the, the manuscripts are taken, as I noted earlier, from eyewitness accounts. And that's, of course, a historical something because it helps us verify the historicity of this material. In other words, you know, if, I, if I write a document today about the Middle Ages, uh, I wasn't there. And I can read text. 
text, and I can go read Middle Ages texts and write all about it, and, and show some expertise in the text themselves, but the actual history is beyond me because I just don't have a time machine. I can't go back there to the Middle Ages. <clears throat> if this text is indeed as old as uh, the specul speculation is running, then it connects us back to perhaps even the original mark. Uh, again, perhaps is the key phrase there because we just don't know at this point uh, where we're going to date this manuscript. But if it dates us back to the original mark, then we're clearly back in the first century, and as I noted earlier, as close as 10 to 20 years from the time of Jesus, which would be pretty astounding. Mm. And like you say, that blows up any type of uh, theory that the Gospels based on legendary material, it being that early. You know, well, exactly. Uh, you know, it takes a certain amount of time for stories to be told and legend to be built upon stories. If you look at the grim fairy tales, for example, example they start out as fiction, but even they've been built up in such a way that the stories have changed. And, and we've seen this not only in the Disneyfication, you know, Disney retelling these stories in, in cartoons for kids, but also in the retelling these stories through various family traditions. Um, it does happen, and, uh, you know, and, and as, as Christian scholars, we can't deny the fact that, especially in, in stories that are fiction, changes are often made. Mm -hmm. And if we can trace this document back to closer to an original, then that also gives us, I think, you know, uh, room to say things like the mark we currently have is representative of what the original author may have written. Now, again, all of this is pure speculation on my part because I haven't seen the manuscript. And we honestly don't know the date of it at this point. But it, it is significant it, historically and uh, apologetically. It, historically, because we just don't have anything that's old, and it can almost connect us back to original Mark. Uh, but apologetically, it's significant, as you already noted, for the sheer purpose of uh, having something that give, connects us to uh, eyewitness accounts. This, 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 this makes the argument stronger for the, the historicity and reliability of the New Testament texts. Amen. Amen. Well, switching gears, uh, we want to take a look. You wrote an article uh, that was published in the Popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics on this thing called Gnosticism. Uh, we, we have different listeners who come from different backgrounds and different levels. Uh, so if you could, could you explain what Gnosticism is and what we mean by the term Gnosticism? Gnosticism, the word Gnosticism covers a variety of religious groups. Um, I think Irenaeus, uh, the, the most well-known early Christian author who wrote against what we would call Gnostic beliefs, um, and he's against heresies, he addresses dozens of groups that are um, what he loosely terms, we would term, I should say, Gnosticism. Uh, he focuses on one particular group, uh, that of Valentinius, but the point is, Gnosticism covers a wide, wide variety of religious uh, groups and cults of the second century. Now, some scholars want to argue for Gnosticism as a first century phenomenon, although um, I think there are probably Gnostic-type ideas that are floating around in the first century. As a movement, we have no evidence for Gnosticism as a religious, full-fledged movement until the second century. Um, so Gnosticism loosely based is, is an is a, is a idea of how the world came into being that adopts what I would call a dualistic approach to the universe. It's kind of platonic in some sense, if you know platonic philosophy, Plato's philosophy. The idea here is that the, the, the world is dual. It's physical and it's spiritual. And for the Gnostics in, in general, now again, there are varieties of Gnosticism, so I'm very broad brushing this. But for Gnostics in general, material is a bad thing, it's evil, physical is not helpful, spiritual is better. And so for them, anything that is connected to matter or material existence would be considered uh, potentially evil, if not outright sinful. Therefore, spiritual is better. And so loosely Gnosticism was this idea that uh, humans want to connect into the more um, spiritual aspect of, of the divine and not the physical aspect of creation. Again, loosely speaking, uh, specifically, there's a, there's a whole lot of 
levels and grades of Gnosticism. Uh, <clears throat> there's even creation myths and stories about how uh, the, the, the material universe came into being that involved gods and goddesses and uh, all kinds of uh, archons and angels and other beings. Uh, to be quite honest, we don't know where Gnosticism, as it's expressed uh, most clearly in in probably third and fourth century, we don't know where it got a start. Scholars in general think it was some kind of a uh, mystical, perhaps Jewish-based idea, maybe Jewish-Christian. Again, it depends on who you're talking to, ultimately. Uh, I think you connect, Gnosticism can be connected directly to this Platonic idea of dualism, though. I don't want to blame Plato for Gnosticism, but uh, there's a lot of similarities in their belief systems. And basically, Gnosticism is arguing that the, the creator, the God of all things, is completely spiritual, because spirit is good. Matter then was created either by accident or by uh, default of a lesser deity who was mad at the transcendent one. It depends on the, the story you're reading. And uh, the matter then becomes further and further removed from the spirit. And so the idea would be how this relates to Christianity ultimately is that uh, um, Jesus could not be God incarnate because God in material would be totally, it's an oxymoron. For them, God couldn't be matter. So, so you know, like like you say, you, you so did they did they view two, there being two gods? I, I heard a rumor or heard something, read something along the lines that that some some Gnostics held the fact that there was this evil god who created matter, and then there was the good spiritual god. Yeah, actually, like I said, there are a variety of brands. Gnosticism uh, really came into vogue in studies in biblical studies with the discovery of the Nag text. So let me add this in for just as a clarification. These texts were discovered in the 40s and 50s in a library in Egypt, Nag Hammadi, ironically. And uh, I think James Robinson, I think I got the name right, I'd have to look it up, uh, a scholar who published these texts, translated and published these texts in an English version. Uh, most of these texts reflected what we would call a dualistic or Gnostic worldview. Uh, some of them create, some of them had stories of creation, some of them had uh, dueling, what you're talking about, the idea of dueling deities. Um, but the reality is, Gnosticism in general, I think, is, is, is um, in some cases, simpler than that. Um, they, they do think of, there are lots of supernatural entities that inhabit a Gnostic world, because humans, who are spiritual in some sense, in Gnostic thought, but are also material, that's obvious, we all have bodies, mm-hmm. have problems relating to the divine, and so we need help. And so lots of Gnostics, kind of like the Neoplatonists, who they weren't necessarily the same groups, but they had very similar ideas, would argue that there are these intermediaries, these other spiritual beings between us and the divine. Now, it, granted, in some Gnostic uh, uh, worldviews, some Gnostic theological perspectives, some of those uh, divine beings were not, were bent the wrong direction. They weren't good. They were evil. And so there are those who argue for a demiurge or a, a, a lesser God who created all things matter because he was mad or, depending on story you're reading, she was mad <laughs> at the divine. Um, and so I'm trying to throw either gender over the bus there with that one. But the, the truth is, Gnosticism has an idea. The bottom line is this idea, matter bad, So how would the how would the salvation play out in Gnostic thought? Is is if you enter Jesus into the fray, uh, how would they see? Would he be like one of these spirit beings helping someone along to reach that uh, spiritual, if you want to call it, utopia or something of that sort? Jewish thought, 
certainly borrowed some ideas of um, the, the concepts of, um, well, the, the platonic concepts of matter, dualism, matter, and spirit, and whatnot. But the, the reality is they, they, they're very... Now, with regards to Jesus, they see him as divine, and so they would have to argue that Jesus as a redeemer is not someone who has any physical connotations to him at all. In other words, Jesus was here to... Oh, we still, we still got plenty of time. <laughs> Understood. realize that that aspect of, of the, uh, the like you said the generalized because obviously as you say there are several different uh, brands of Gnosticism but I, I never realized there was that divine spark that was believed that some people had in, in the Gnostic thought and so that's that's very very interesting um, yeah, and, and, and let's be sure there, I have no doubt there were Gnostic groups who were more egalitarian that uh, you know the, 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 the might have thought that all humans have the potential for that I, Right. Now, 
it's not exhaustive because a lot of Gnostic materials were lost to, to uh, uh, history, unfortunately, either by people not taking care of them or by actually being burned as heretical materials. Um, so, again, the goal was to evolve from the soul, from the sleeping soul, this idea of their high destiny. Again, whether it was an election, uh, they were predetermined by receiving a divine spark, or whether it was free will kind of thing. It really depends on the Gnostic text, I think, that you're reading. So the, the present material world, then, is counter to a spiritual god, and it's in control of evil powers and evil supernatural powers, even. Uh, they used to think of uh, the old Gnostics, because the, they had a smaller version of the universe in their minds, and we have, we think of the seven planets of our solar system um, as being, you know, uh, in some sense, think astrology, you know. Saturn is in such and such, that kind of thing. But they would see these as deities of some sort or evil powers of some sort that would control people's destinies, control people's existence. So religious practice would include things like learning magic passwords, using amulets, um, understanding how to work against the, the evil powers and work with the, the divine or work with the, the good powers. Um, <clears throat> Some of them were very ascetic. They would, you know, modern day, uh, um, they would be monks of some sort. They would completely um, disregard the physical life because it, it was matter. So matter was bad. <clears throat> some would be the exact opposite. Since matter was evil and matter had no eternal repercussions, you can do what you want to with matter as long as the spirit is fine. Mm. So, uh, you know, again, they ran a wide gamut. It, it, it pretty much, in some ways, like uh, some theologies and other religions and, and Christianity and, and other Islam do today, for that matter. So, um, it was this was a, a large group, as far as ex, um, as far as the number of groups that lived and breathed this theology, there were a variety of them. We'll just leave it at that. Absolutely. I don't have any census numbers, so I couldn't tell you how many folks were actual Gnostics. But from Judaism, the Gnostics got this idea of the world as an apocalyptic battle. That is, there's light and there's darkness, and um, <clears throat> the goal is to be in the light, not in the dark. And spirit, you know, so spiritual versus matter kind of thing. From Christianity, though, the Gnostics seem to have drawn this idea of redemption. That is, the need for uh, deliverance from this physical shell. And for them, Jesus then becomes, if you will, um, a redeemer of some sort. But the, how he acts, if I understand the text correctly, is that uh, he's not flesh. He can't be flesh, because that would be material. So he may look human in the sense of look like he's made up of matter, but he's really not. This is where we get the idea of docetism from that uh, often comes up in that conversations about First John and the Gospel of John. The idea that Jesus only seemed to be uh, human. But uh, the point is, Jesus came to awaken the sleeping souls, the divine sparks, to help people by his teaching to see who they were always meant to be. Mm. So, in that sense, he's more of a, of a teacher or an enlightener or something. In fact, you see language in the Gospel of John, the Gnostics were not... Uh, uh, they didn't dislike the Bible in general. They used it for their own purposes, especially some of the New Testament works. And the Gospel of John, if memory serves me, the first commentary on that Gospel was written, I think this is right, I, I need to check my sources, but was written by a, a, a Gnostic. Oh. And the early church didn't like that, for obvious reasons. And uh, the Gnostics, they saw things in John that, that, was, that they could use, the idea of Jesus coming to illuminate souls, to delight every person, that kind of stuff. But of course, if you read the Gospel of John closely, you'll also find things that would be decidedly non-Gnostic in their materials, because um, John says the word God became flesh and dwelt among us, which obviously would be non-Gnostic in more view. Absolutely. Now, I know a lot of our, in fact, I, as a pastor, I've been approached uh, by this issue by some by some individuals who hear like on the History Channel or, or various sources about there being these other non-canonical Gospels floating around, such as the Gospel of Thomas or the go Secret Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Uh, 
what is the connection between these gospels and Gnosticism, and and why was it uh, that the church disallowed these these books from being in the canon? You know, you hear some people say, well, it was just a popularity contest between different Christianities, and one Christianity won out. Why was it that Orthodox Christianity dis well, if you want to call it, say disbarred or just dis- disallowed uh, these documents from being part of the New Testament canon? Well, I think the, the biggest part of it had to do with worldview. Um, there were, the, the, we knew through Irenaeus of a certain number, a few dozen, if memory serves me, it's been a while since I've read Irenaeus's Against Heresies, a few dozen groups that we would call Gnostic today. Um, but he was aiming his primary apologetics at what I call Valentinian Gnosticism. So he kind of lumped them all together in one group. It'd be like if I wanted to, uh, to, to, to make a popular example, if I wanted to argue against um, uh, um, a Christian group of Baptists picking only on the Southern Baptists. Right. <laughs> as, as the typical, right? And, and we all know there are a lot more Baptists. Uh, I am Southern Baptist, so I'm picking on us. But uh, <laughs> there are other Baptists beyond Southern Baptists, and we don't always see eye to eye. So the truth is there, there are a variety of Gnosticisms, but um, the Nag Hammadi text, being, they were a gold mine. Twelve, uh, there were um, 12 huge finds of 52 total works. And among those works were books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, um, James, this, uh, this Gospel of Judas that has come out um, in the past few years that people have been talking about as though it was a brand new find. We've, we've known this existed for decades. It was originally translated, if memory serves me, in the 70s, 1970s. Um, but all these texts were, were typically lumped into Gnosticism because of their worldview. Um, they have a view of the universe as being something that's mainly dualistic, as we already noted, matter versus spirit. They have a view of God as an all-powerful being who's completely spiritual, no matter at all. That he doesn't. There's no physicality to God of any kind. He can't be incarnate. That would be sinful. Uh, he's completely transcendent and, in some ways, almost unknowable. You know, you, you can't get there from here, so to speak. Um, the creation of, the, of, uh, of spirit beings happens because almost as an afterthought. In some cases, they're, they're sometimes called aeons or the pleroma, the fullness. Um, there's uh, also a story that's told in one cosmic Gnostic myth of, a, of an aeon named uh, Sophia who exceeded her boundaries. She wanted so much to be united with a transcendent God that she uh, desired him so intensely that it caused problems. And um, he, she exceeded her boundaries, and she ended up being a fallen being. Um, these fallen beings, sometimes they're called archons or sometimes called other things in the, in the Gnostic text. Um, but these archons are then the ones who end up sort of creating the material universe. The, even the, the concept of a demiurge, which you do find in Platonic thought, this not quite God something creates the universe. And so the physical universe is an accident. It's a as I noted earlier, it's a cosmic mistake. But then they also hold these views, which of course, if you read the the Old Testament text and the New Testament text of Christianity, they'll argue for a transcendent God, a holy God, certainly an unapproachable God. He's in an unapproachable light. He's holy. But they also talk about an imminent God, a God who is among us, and especially in Christian doctrine in the New Testament, where the incarnation. God becomes one of us. Uh, you know, in Hebrews, he's tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. So God even endures some of the, as a physical being, endures some of the same things we as humans endure. Jesus was hungry. Jesus felt loneliness. Jesus, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, even felt the pressure of what he was facing on the cross. Um, so the Gnostics would say, no, 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 that's not divine at all. God can't do that, you see. So I, it's it's a. I think the church saw this and said, you know, they're, they're, some of these ideas come from Judeo-Christian things, but they've twisted them, for lack of better terms. Right. Um, I mean, for Gnosticism, 
the creation of a physical universe is what brings evil into the world. For Christianity, it's the creation of a physical universe that begins the relationship of human of God to humanity, and it's a and it's seen even though humanity there's a false story in Genesis and humans are sinful in the New Testament. There's still this idea that God did this not because He wanted to create evil; He wanted to create people to love, to relate to, right? right. Um, so the material world is a, in their mind, an agnostic mind is a prison for spiritual things. You have to get you have to get shed of it to be free. Um, it's it's just an interesting idea. So uh, when you think of things like that, immediately you can see how theologically this doesn't fit with what we see even in the New Testament documents. Much less in the early church in the first four centuries as she's um, you know making decisions, uh, theological decisions on things like Christology and uh, the incarnation and things like that. Um, so for Nazism, salvation is an escape from matter back to spiritual realities. The way you get there is by self-knowledge, by an awareness, or by being awakened, by proper teaching, or in some cases just because the unknown, unapproachable God lets you. Wow. So if you look at that and you think about how God interacts with humans, at least as depicted in Scripture, you realize that's dramatically different. You know, Abraham didn't come to self-awareness. He came to a God-awareness, so to speak. So, so, some branches of uh, Gnosticism almost makes you think of uh, an ancient form of Scientology or something like that. You know? well, <clears throat> in some ways, yes. I mean, uh, uh, Scientologists are, are, in some cases, very dualistic in their viewpoint. I'm not an expert on Scientology. Uh, I have read some of their materials and I have done some research in, in their, their theology, if you want to call it that, um, because Scientology ultimately sees human beings as potential gods, in some sense of that word at least. They don't call them gods, but the, the, they, they see us as being potentially divine beings. And um, through proper methods and proper training, you can release that div- divinity to become better at everything you do. And it, and it is a supernatural spiritual reality for them. It's not... I don't, I don't know that though the Scientology sees matter as necessarily evil, but they do see you know, like negative brain patterns, negative experiences, tragedies, bad stuff that happens to you as uh, an impediment to rising up and being the, the spiritual being you're called to be. Uh, so there, is a, there are some connections, I would agree. Uh, personally, I think Scientology is more like some of the Greek mystery religions. It's about knowing the proper practice and knowing the, the, the right names and knowing, the, I mean, the Scientologists do have this purging of uh, negative uh, negativity, negative things that goes into their, their religion as well. Um, but see, Nazism would say that, that uh, the problem isn't um, bad thought. The problem is you haven't heard, um, haven't been educated properly. Mm. You know, you, you, you need to be educated by uh, someone who knows a divine spark within you to help you realize your divine spark. Right. So it's not a really, it's not an evangelistic religion. And, and see, this is a difference too, I think, with Scientology. If we're going to compare um, religions here, Scientology does have kind of an evangelistic bent. It's a decidedly American religion in some ways, to be honest with you. And uh, for Scientology, they're, they're wanting people, they're, they're, they, they want to reach people with their ideas. For Gnosticism, uh, I, I can't say it wasn't evangelistic, but it wasn't evangelistic in the same sense. Um, the goal is to be reabsorbed into the divine. To uh, almost, I, I guess, some some versions is it Buddhism that holds to this, uh, or is it Hinduism that holds to this idea of an absolute nothingness? You just become one with all things. Um, only in Gnosticism, it's not one with all things; it's one with the divine being. Um, so it, it's it's almost losing personality, almost losing who you are to be caught up in this knowledge caught up in this person self-knowledge becomes ultimately god knowledge of some sort does that make sense absolutely absolutely that's that's what's called gnosticism from the greek word gnosis for knowledge it's not relationship based it's 
knowledge-based. It's what you know that matters, not how you're related to, to God or how you're related to people. Absolutely. Dr. Purcell, we have about 10 minutes left, and I, I was wanting to get your insight as a as a New Testament scholar, as a philosopher and theologian. Um, you know, the, new, new, the early church fought off against some of these more heretical groups, and just... And I hope I'm not opening a can of worms here by asking this, but but being a New Testament scholar, a philosopher, a theologian, what do you see as some of the most uh, troubling or perhaps even the most dangerous trends or threatening trends, if you want to call it that, facing the modern church today? And how might we combat some of those things? Of course, I know we can we could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about that, but <laughs> what are some things that you see? Well, personally, the, one of the biggest problems I see in Christianity today is a misunderstanding of, of uh, humanity, uh, what uh, Dr. King might call bad anthropology. The the idea that some of the, there are Gnostic ideas that have crept into the church. Uh, by the church, I'm using that very general. I'm not talking about a specific group of, of Christians. But, for example, this idea that, uh, that you know, will be almost like disembodied spirits floating around eternity or something like that. Um, To be human uh, is to be, in some sense, embodied. Mm. Um, Adam and Eve were created physical beings. Uh, Yes, I I understand we're body, soul, and spirit, but we don't have a body. We're not... The the teaching that bugs me the most is when I hear a pastor say, your earth suit. You know, you put on this earth suit to live your life here on earth, and you'll cast it off to be with Jesus. Uh, it's not, this body I'm, uh, this body that's part of who I am is not simply an earth suit. It's part of being human. Right. And it will be resurrected into another physical, embodied something. Now, I grant you, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about the terrestrial versus celestial body. I don't even want to begin to speculate what that's like, but it will be physical in some sense of that term. So I think what worries me is this this idea. I even had some friends on on Facebook not too long ago that got into a discussion about uh, uh, you know Jesus choosing to, after he died and was had returned to the presence of God, deciding to return to this body to be resurrected, even though that was a, a not a good thing. And I was like. You, you don't understand the Incarnation if you think that was a bad thing. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't understand Resurrection if you think our physical bodies are the problem. They can be, certainly, in this, this environment we live in, but we're going to be physical for eternity. Exactly. We're going to be in, in new bodies, resurrected bodies as Christians. But, so I think that's one of the most dangerous things to me is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be human that has allowed some Gnostic concepts to creep in, that somehow I'm a supernatural, spiritual soul inhabiting a suit, like an astronaut would inhabit a spacesuit. That's, I think, dangerous logic because it misrepresents Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. He physically got up out of the grave. That's a signal for us as believers that there's something beyond this life and it's a physical something as well as a supernatural something. And I think we, we have to be careful with how we navigate that. It's, you know, um, I'm not saying I have all the answers there either, but I, I do think that's a problem. But as far as outside influences that are coming into the church or that, 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 that could potentially be dangerous for us, uh, Gnosticism itself has uh, enjoyed a, a, a renewal or revival, if you want to call it, of some sort in the, the past uh, you know, 80 or 90 years, um, even longer, I guess, technically speaking, in the, early, the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, Gnostic ideas became uh, uh, you know, something people championed with the discovery of Nag Hammadi texts. There's even Gnostic churches in the world. You can do a Google search if you're curious about uh, more information on those things. But they, they tie themselves to this ancient Gnostic belief and so, even as a modern something, there's still what, what uh, Irenaeus combated in his Against Heresies still exists, literally, in uh, some places in the world. Um, but, but you have other religions and other ideas, I think, uh, that I would, especially more cultic ideas, that I think are out there that are dangerous. Um, 
necessarily evil. And, and I, wanna, I think the church needs to be aware of that. To be embodied is not necessarily the same thing as being um, bad. So um, this, this denigration of our bodies is a dangerous thing, I think. Absolutely, and I, th- and I think you're absolutely right about that because you know I I know you know Paul talks about the intermediate state being absent from the body but present with the Lord. But like you say, that's not the final state. The final state is the resurrection state, which is going to be a physical state. I, I, yes, absolutely, and even even in uh, in Christian doctrine, the idea of the final state of the lost people, those who are followers of Christ. Um, they're they're resurrected in some sense. They're not just disembodied spirits that are put into a disembodied spirit jail. Right. So they have some kind of physical existence for the rest of eternity in this place we call hell, this place that doesn't have any of the benefits of the good stuff God's created. Whatever hell is, besides the fire brimstone imagery used in the text, in the, in the Bible, it's also the absence of friendship, the absence of joy, the absence of the good stuff, beauty, um, love, uh, you know, reconciliation. And so imagine being in a place where physically you can feel, emotionally you can experience, but all you get is, is completely the bad, the evil, rejection, anarchy, disrespect, pain, suffering. Whereas in the presence of Christ, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow. There will be, so it, to me, that's why I think it's important to avoid this Gnostic idea, because the, 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 there is something, even physical, in the painful sufferings of hell that ought to cause us as Christians to want to share the truth of Jesus to people so they won't have to endure it. Amen. Yeah, I mean, even um, even Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained and some of Milton's literature, uh, if memory serves me, there's depictions of hell that include physical torment. I mean, uh, I'll grant you this is uh, the fiction based or theology, theologically based fiction. Let me get this right before I say it wrong. <laughs> um, but still, I think denigrating the body has caused more problems for the church than anything. I mean, we're facing a society in which people are, cons- are, are content to think their feelings are the most important thing. How I feel matters more than what's real. Oh, man. And not just the feeling aspect, but even that I can change his body how I want to, it's irrelevant. <laughs> but is it irrelevant? That's the question. You know? <laughs> and I, I think that's something the church needs to wrestle with a little bit. And, and by buying into this, all that really matters is spiritual stuff. We miss out on the reality that you no, know, this physical physical stuff is pretty important. At you, least it seems to be. You know, I never made the connection until you just mentioned that. You know about you know um, how this how even focusing on the spiritual and not looking at the reality of the physical even affects the. Uh, emotional influence we have over over truth whereas we need to focus on truth you know truth first and and that is a powerful statement and uh, well brother i think it's probably a good place to close the podcast <laughs> i think i think i think that uh as greg kokel i've heard him often say that a lot of times when he shares the gospel what he'll do is uh, simply leave a stone in someone's shoe Brother, I think we left a boulder and some shoes on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and that is certainly st- something that we all need to remember and all need to focus on. And that's a powerful word. Dr. Purser, thank you as always for being with us. Uh, for, for Dr. Purser, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christian Podcast. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll say God bless and we'll hope to see you back The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese. 
performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Manson Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north, the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of bellatorchristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today. Life. Liberty. And the pursuit of happiness. Our great nation was built on these simple principles. So was our university. Find your greatness at Liberty. Online or on campus, discover more at liberty.edu. It's the difference between a job and a career.